good to see all of you here. Welcome to Woven Covenant Church. My name is Wayne Park. I am the lead pastor of this congregation, and it's continually um, my privilege and honor um, to shepherd this flock. So for the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Servant Songs. Servant Songs, which is a series through the book of Isaiah. And the reason we're talking through Isaiah this summer it's a good time for us to get into, uh, deep into Scripture through some expo- expositional preaching. And in particular, we are a gospel church. We're a church that tells the story of Jesus. As a new church, two years old, we've been telling the story of Jesus to people in our communities, to people in our neighbor- neighborhoods, and sharing the gospel story. The book of Isaiah is important because it is the gospel to the gospel, It is the story that people in the Gospels themselves were reading and were understanding as their Bible. In particular, in the book of Isaiah, there are passages called the Servant Songs. And these are a series of passages that talk about a servant that would suffer and that would give himself on behalf of the people and then would be vindicated. These songs would come up again and again all throughout the Gospels, and these are the songs, the servant songs, that we are preaching through. Why? Because it gives us a glimpse into the early church, it gives us into the glimpse of the story, and in particular, it gives us a glimpse into the mind of Jesus. Jesus, as he's reading these very words, this was his Bible reading the servant songs in Isaiah, began to develop a self-understanding and even a psychology. And today we're going to talk through the third servant song, the third song, um, and it's going to give us a chance to get into the psychology and the emotional states of the suffering servant. And in particular, I'm going to talk through six emotional states of the servant that you'll find in your bulletin. If you look in your notes on the three hole punches, you'll find six emotional states of the servant. And we'll go through these one by one. These are progressive and consecutive. Now, mind you, these emotional states, they speak about the servant. This does not speak about us. This scripture passage, it speaks about Jesus or it speaks about the suffering servant. But I think that there's still much that we can learn and apply and receive from these six emotional processes that the servant goes through. In a sense, Jesus reads these words and he realizes this is what I need to prepare myself for. This is the emotional pathway that I need to get myself ready. This is the emotional process that I'm going to go through. And he knows this and he understands this about himself. So with that, let's read Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 11. I think it's important for us to read this once through all together so that we can get a general feel of this whole story. So all together, now Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. 
For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. I'd like to stop there. Verses 10 and 11 we'll come back to at the end. But these several passages um, talk about this process of the, of the uh, suffering servant. And I want to begin right there with verse 4, with the first emotional state. In verse 4 it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. How to sustain the weary one with the word. Now, with things going on in our nation right now, um, I, along with a host of many pastors, are very, very sensitive. How do we sustain many, many weary people in different communities? How can we sustain with a word? As if I can just say something that could comfort you. But the more and more I do ministry, the more I realize actually the words of a minister have power. That maybe you've come to this place and maybe you've come despondent, discouraged, or needing some kind of sustaining. You just need to hear something positive. And when you hear that, it's exactly what you needed to hear. It's exactly what you needed. It's the word that spoke to you. You know, when I was in seminary, it's as if you could teach people how to do this. As if you could teach people how to sustain weary people with the word. It is the art of listening and speaking well. It is the art of listening and speaking well. And so what we have here is somebody who's learning, who's learning how to speak well. We have somebody that's learning. The servant is being instructed, it says, instructed on how to sustain and how to, how to speak artfully and to listen. listen. Listening is an art as well. Empathy and being able to walk into somebody's suffering and to understand. And it, it just, it, not only that, it also says morning by morning. Morning by morning he awakens me. And so this is like a daily class. It's as if he's going to class every morning to learn how to sustain the weary one with a word. And it says, he awakens my ear. He wakes me up. And, you know, I know this experience having to wake up and commuting north of the border to go into Canada where I was studying seminary and theology, how to be a pastor. And every morning learning, awakened, so that I could learn to listen as a disciple. As a disciple. That word disciple in the Hebrew can be translated instructed, be instructed. So here is a servant that doesn't just start off knowing how to do this stuff, how to say things that help people. This is somebody that's learning, that is instructed. The first emotional state is instructed or informed or informational. The first stage of our development as human beings begins with information. You learn something you understand something, and you are instructed. That is the first step. We continue on with verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, 
and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. So if the first step is instruction, the second emotional step is obedience. So the first step is instruction, the second step is obedience. I can talk to you and teach you about a door. I can say a door is, is structured this way with these dimensions. It can be made of wood. I can describe the process for how the latch works and how you open it. I can describe and say, when you see the door, you're going you're gonna to find this green thing. We have green doors right here. Or you press this and you're going to... But there, there's nothing that can replace the experience of actually walking through the door. To instruct somebody in life is one thing, but to actually take what you've been taught and instructed and to obe- in obedience walk through and follow through, that is the second important step. The reflection and the fill-in-the-blank, friends, is this. We hear, we forget. Now, I know that as a minister, the words that I speak encourage and bring life. But the thing is, chances are, we will forget what we hear. But if we take the next step, if we see, and that's why we try to have visual aids, maybe we'll remember. But it's only until you do that we understand. We hear, we'll forget. We see, maybe we'll remember. But it's only until we do that we understand. And with every application that I labor to bring, verbs, Sunday after Sunday, do these things. It will give you life. It will help you. Instead of just going home and saying, that was, that was good food for thought, we find that there are verbs of action that we need to follow through. So this servant is, first of all, taught and instructed. But secondly, this servant has to obey. Jesus, reading these words, says, wow, all of this stuff, theoretically, I can go and save the nation. Theoretically, I can go and deliver the people, but it's going to require walking through the door of suffering. And that's the hardest part. The hardest part is moving from point A, which is hearing this sermon, to point B, which is living and walking it through. And Jesus, the suffering servant, knows this, and he's not looking forward to it because the next four steps in the emotional process are not easy. But he has to obey. We continue with verse 6. The servant now starts getting into it. What started off as information becomes obedient, and now the servant reads these words and says, this is the tough part. And the words say, I gave my back to those who strike me, and I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Friends, during this time and during this very heavy political climate, um, I wish it didn't have to become political, but the reality is there are suffering people in various communities, and I also want to recognize the hard work that our police force does. Very dangerous work, day in and day out fearing the possibility. Uh, The wives of police officers that I know fear the reality that their spouse, or in some cases, wives as well, will not come home. 
And that's why it's so important that violence doesn't meet violence or violence doesn't respond with violence. And yet the way forward during these difficult times is always peace. And if you see somebody lighting up your Facebook feed with something that really gets under your skin, don't lash out. And I see my friends on both sides of the aisle saying things and they're yelling past each other and look I understand where this side is coming from I understand what these people are saying I don't agree with everything I read but shouting louder does not solve the problem the way forward is a model of passivity and I don't mean passive aggressiveness passive aggressiveness is 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 a terrible evil but what I mean is more of passive in the sense of pacifist And that's the third emotional stage that the servant has to go through, pacifism. Now, I'm not talking at this point about, you know, uh, dodging the draft or any of this stuff or, you know, practicing like some people do. Um, But I am talking about the dignity that comes in the face of protest, in the face of of, uh, opposition, where you, instead of fighting back, instead of escalating and reacting, stand and with dignity allow the spitting and the harm and allow just you know just allow it to come and yes that's difficult but this is the path of the servant the third is passive because the servant knows if he takes matters into his hands he will turn out and we'll talk about this at the end he will turn out like those who have tried to deliver themselves and have Well, hold that thought. We'll get there. Friends, I am a firm believer in pacifism. And I don't mean that in the sense that I'm anti-war or that there's no such thing as just war. But in the daily grind of life, somebody cuts you off, live and let live. In the daily grind of life, if something happens in the corporate marketplace or in the work field, you have competition, or something happens, somebody slights you, I believe in the mantra, better to let it go than to shoot back and to react. Because in the end, you will be justified if you are in the right. The reflection for this third emotional stage is, am I too often taking matters into my own hands? Am I too often taking matters into my own hands? Am I trying... There's a phrase that they taught me when I was in seminary that's so powerful. Am I trying to architect my own salvation. The continuous temptation in life is to architect my way out of my own circumstances, to architect my own salvation and deliverance. And to some degree, it's necessary to do that. You must work hard. You must find a way forward. But sometimes, the best way forward is to let God. And the servant knows this. The servant knows that the pathway forward is not one of aggression, of self-deliverance. The servant knows the way is living, dying, and being born again, and being risen again. We continue with verse 7. The emotional process gets deeper and deeper. And now we hear the servant saying, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint. This is somebody that's intent on not breaking. I will not break. I will face what's coming forward. Even if it harms me, I will go forward. And I know 
that I will not be ashamed. I know that I will not be ashamed. And this person with a face like flint goes forward and knows they won't be disgraced. The fourth emotional step is vulnerability. Vulnerability is different from passivity because passivity is a commitment to not react. Vulnerability is a commitment to allow yourself to be wounded. Vulnerability is a commitment to say, I understand that harm might come from this, but I also understand that it's good. I'm reading this book by Brene Brown right now called Daring Greatly. She is a shame researcher that teaches at the University of Houston and has one of the most top 10 viewed TED Talks online. And if you just look up the name Brene Brown, you'll find this. Her whole thing is about shame and how shame keeps us from breaking through to engagement and breaking through to connection. This, is a, this applies not just to your emotional life, to your relationship with your significant other or your children. It also applies professionally. It applies to your, your, uh, your capacity as a leader in the marketplace. Shame is what keeps us from being real. Vulnerability is the solution and the answer. And I can share with you, I mean... <laughs> All of you have, well, not all of you, but some of you, you know, some of you guys have known me for five years now since the, since I, the very beginning, you know, since I came to, to Harvest five years ago, three years ministering. I remember those first three years, I was very guarded. I'm the pastor of the church. I have to behave, make sure that I put on a good front. I can't be too honest. I have to be clean, tuck my shirt in, make sure that I don't cross any lines, Problem is I cross too many lines sometimes. But eventually I began to realize, especially as we began to plant this church, that showing some of my weaknesses, admitting that I was wrong, and not being ashamed of that was the way forward. Vulnerability and admitting weakness, and hopefully I've been practicing what I preach. Um, you know, I'll share one story about this vulnerability thing. Uh, summer camp is coming up, and here at Woven, we have a really, really awesome summer camp for children that are in grades two and up, and it's coming up in about four weeks. We join other kids from Covenant churches around the Mid-South area, and this year we have about 110 kids. It's incredibly diverse. Asian is not the predominant culture at this camp. And so I came not only as a... As a, as a parent, my son was there, but I got involved as a chaperone and as, 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 a, as a camp, you know, I, I, I was, you know, playing in the band and helping out. And the one thing about the band is that they, um, we had to do these skits for the kids, for the children, every morning. And I hated the skits. I hated the skits because, number one, we came up with them at 11 p.m. at night when we were all dead tired. So we had these real kind of trippy, strange skits in the morning. Like, we thought of that? And I hated it, number two, because Dale Lusk, who's the director of this camp, was intent, intent on picking on the Asian guy. Why? Because the Asian guys are so reserved. We don't dance. We don't, you know, this camp is so diverse, and all the white kids, all the black kids are there. Everybody's getting into it, 
right? Me and my son, like, we're, we were the first Asian people at this camp in a long time. Now, Access Covenant, they're coming out this year, too. But we led the way. And, and me and my son, I remember, like, the music was coming, and the music was playing, and I just started doing this, you know? Because I was kind of, like, shy, and my brother, my, my, my brother, my son is mortified. He's looking at me, and he's like, don't do that. And Dale was so intent on making us vulnerable, making me vulnerable. And on the fifth day, the last day, they decided to have a skit where they humiliated all of the worship team. And what they did was they had David McCustian, who played the drums, and he did this thing where they painted his toenails, and it was, that was, that was not, not a big deal, right? And then there was Harry Hoagland, who they had him doing the nene and everything, and he was doing, they got him up doing, he was pretty good, and then they said, Pastor Wayne, you're going to do the Frozen dance. And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, yes, you are. And I said, all right, do it for the kids. Do it for the kids. And, and I think to this day, I haven't told you about the Frozen dance, right? And you haven't seen the video. If you see it, I think your jaws would drop. But I'll tell you, it was the best, most loved video of the entire camp. They loved it because they didn't expect it. I knew I was going to get humiliated, and I decided to be vulnerable. And in my decision to be vulnerable, I, I started coming up with these great ideas, and um, they filmed it, and it got a little trippy. Like, it wound up in the amphitheater, and they dumped a bucket of ice water on top of my head, and I started flash dancing, and all the jocks that were running the camp were giving me standing ovations upstairs on the second floor, and it was pretty awesome, and you're just going to have to go to camp to see the video. Um, but it, it was humiliating, but it was a chance for me to put myself out there and be vulnerable. Why? Because vulnerability is the way you engage. Vulnerability is the way that people feel like they can relate to you. And if we put up a steel wall, or if we're too shy to dance, that's why every Sunday morning when we're setting up, we got the mu music. The latest song is Justin Timberlake's song. Why do we do that? Why does Ellen do that at the beginning of her show? When she starts coming out, she starts dancing and she starts doing all this stuff. Why? Because her show is all about vulnerability. The willingness to say, look, this is embarrassing, but I'm just going to tell you this is what's going on in my life, is the first step to engaging. Why was it so important for the servant to be vulnerable to the umpteenth degree where he was not just physically harmed but humiliated, spit it at? Why? Because then anybody can say, I relate to that. Because at the end of the day, anybody can say, man, that's hard. That makes me feel better. The servant had to go through the utter humiliation so that in his ultimate vulnerability, a whole entire world could say, I relate to that. That is human enough for me. The suffering servant, and this is where we're going to get into it in the weeks to come, talk about the suffering of the servant. It's vulnerability that paves the way towards engagement. Friends, parents even, parents, you cannot just parent your child. You also have to be vulnerable. And don't just sit there, engage your sons and your daughters. Engage those children behind this wall. Friends, I know that I'm not the only one because the more I am vulnerable with my church, I know I can see it in you guys too. It creates a culture of vulnerability. And so this is the reflection 
the reflection question is, how am I contributing to the community of vulnerability? How am I contributing to this community of vulnerability? Vulnerability requires trust. You don't just go to somebody on the street and say, hey, can I share with you all my dark problems? You don't do that. It's built in the context of trust. This, I pray, would become a community of vulnerability. The fifth emotional step for the servant, it doesn't stop, it doesn't end at vulnerability. After all, when I did my frozen dance, I got the loudest applauses. <laughs> all, the, all the kids and the parents that were there, they were like floored, and in the end, I was like, oh, I'm vindicated. It wasn't this kind of thing where it just, they played the video, and you could hear a pin drop, and everybody was like, oh my God. It was more like, you know, the applause, and, you know, there was a sense of vindication. The servant is finally vindicated. If you look at verse 8, it says, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Those words in Hebrew literally can be translated, stand up, let's take this outside, I'm ready. Stand up. There's a ready, there's a ready argument, argumentativeness about this. Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near. This person is fearless. The servant is vindicated because they know that God has his back. The servant knows God has his back and therefore he knows that there's nothing to be humiliated about. There's nothing to be ashamed. Shame, no need for it. God will vindicate me. Shame, no need for it. God will vindicate me. That's the fifth step, but there's a sixth step this one might not go down very easy. It's kind of a difficult pill. But this sixth step is avenged. Avenged. The servant will be avenged. Listen to verse 9. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who condemns me? Who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them. And how, how can I put this lightly? Um, in my years in ministry, I have seen this principle come true. Not to other people. I've even seen it in my own life. If I misbehave, I reap what I sow. If people misbehave, they reap what they sow. If you are justified and you've stood your ground, and you've done the right thing, stay still. God will avenge you. If your coworker or somebody has slighted you or betrayed you or in a relationship, and you know that you've done the right thing, stay still. This is the application. Be still. Let God or God will fight my battles for me. Let God fight your battles for you. Take things into your own hands, and I promise and assure you, God will say, okay, give it your best shot. Let's see how you do. And most of the time, in fact, all the time, we don't do very well when we take things into our own hands. Be still 
and let God fight the battles for you. But take things into your own hands and God, okay, I'll step out of the picture. Friends, that leads to the last two verses and we'll conclude with this. I want you to hear these words. I think they're very powerful. In chapter 50, verse 10, it says, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. It seems to me that the statement here is we are to stay in the darkness. Does this make any sense? What's being said here is stay in this position of trust. Things are not right. They'll work out. Stay and walk in the darkness. This very much made sense for the people reading this because during that time, as they were in captivity and experiencing national political turmoil, what's being said is you don't want to go up against Assyria. You don't want to go up against Babylon. Try to fight that battle. You're trying to deliver yourself. Walk in this period. Keep your head down. Stay under the radar and walk in the darkness. Don't try to deliver yourself. Because every time Israel tried to do that, it failed miserably. Stay in the darkness. Walk in the darkness. Why? And this is where verse 11 comes around. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your own fire and among the brands that you yourself have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Do you get what that's saying? I think there's a twofold sense in this, and I'll wrap up. Number one, historically, this was very accurate. The firebrands that it talks about, you know what a firebrand is? It's a piece of wood, it's, 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 it's I guess, a bundle of sticks, and it's something that, it's a torch, basically. And what they're saying is, in the darkness, because you're afraid of the dark, or you don't want to stay in the darkness, you circle yourself, you create your own light. And historically, people were trying to do that. In their occupation, in their political turmoil, there were literally firebrands, or maybe not literally, figuratively, firebrands. People, revolutionaries that said, we are going to overthrow Rome. We're going to try to architect our own salvation. We're going to light our own fire, and we're going to set this thing ablaze, and we're going to deliver ourselves. And the message is, do that, and in the end, you yourself will lie down in torment. The message here, friends, is don't try to light your own fire. Don't try to trigger things to happen your way. I know this goes against all of the marketing schemes of the world where we try to make the next big thing happen. We try to build up social media buzz and there's a place for that. But in the end, don't front yourself to get to a place where you're lighting your own fires. Live in trust and darkness. Don't be afraid of the dark.
close with the last story, I promise. Jerry Sitzer was a professor of religion at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. And he was a man that had all of his life in order. Wonderful things were happening until one fateful day, one night, he was driving home behind his family. His family, actually three generations, his mother, his wife, and his daughter were in the car in front. It was raining. And when he arrived on the scene, he saw the police lights and he saw his wife's car upside down. And when he rushed on the scene and tried to resuscitate and tried to be there, he realized that they, he lost three generations. They all died in the car accident. His mother, his wife, and his daughter. And in that darkest of times, this man experienced unspeakable suffering, unspeakable pain, and could not climb out of the darkest of depressions. And as he lived in this place, I mean, psychologically, I understand you want relief from the grief. The grief when you wake up and you remember they're not there anymore. I'm alone. When you wake up and you realize that, that I've lost everything, I have to rebuild, there's nothing to rebuild with. And the grief and just wanting some relief from that, one night he had a dream. And in his dream, he saw the sunset in the west. Now, this is Spokane, west coast. And he saw the sun setting and he was running after the sun. I just want a little bit more happiness. I just want a little bit more day. I just want a little bit more time with my wife and my kids, and I wish I could laugh with them again. But the sun was setting, and he was chasing it, saying, I want to feel the goodness and the warmth again. And he chased it, but the sun was constantly running away from him until he heard a voice in the dark. And the voice said, Turn around. I am in the dark. Much of life is like this. For the Israelites, it was like this. Don't chase the glory days in the sun. Turn around. God is with you and waiting for you and will meet you and will craft you and will shape you and will change your life in the dark. And what will happen, my friends? What is that? It's the sun. The light of day is coming up again. Hope is coming back. Don't architect your salvation. Trust in God who lives in the darkness. He will cause the sun to rise as you face the east. The final reflection is how am I trying to start my own fires? This is your homework. <laughs> if I can give you homework. Just reflect, how this week am I trying to do it myself? How am I trying to set myself up? How am I trying to make things so that I, ego, me, how am I trying to start my own fires? Rather, maybe we can say, how can I trust in God in the darkness? I don't believe in complete and utter passivity and not doing anything at all. I don't think that's the message. But there are times when you know you're trying too hard. There are times when we know we are trying too hard. Let go. Let God. Let Him. Close your eyes with me.
want to invite you to respond at this time in a time of prayer. Is there somewhere where you know you need to let go, let him, that you're trying too hard, that you're forcing things? Pause for a moment and to say, God, I surrender to your will and to your care of my life. Take care of this problem that I face. Take care of this issue. Take care of this thing. Surrender is hard. Pray out your prayer of surrender now. Quietly in your heart. that prayer, you can repeat after me. God, I offer myself to you. Build with me. Do with me as you will. I surrender. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Follow your better way. And so I surrender now. I give my life to you. I place my trust and faith in you. Lord Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.